Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki, and I hope you're well wherever you are in the world listening to this talk today. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce you to Professor Virginia Kilborn today. She is the Chief Scientist at Swinburne University of Technology, and it's an absolute honor for me to have you on the show today. Virginia, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Nikki. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, fantastic. So uh, for our audience, Virginia and I actually were speakers at an event about uh, three weeks ago, and it was just an obvious thing that Virginia needed to be on this podcast. And we were talking about to school kids, and it's a, it's a subject that we're both passionate about getting kids into STEM. That's exactly right. And I think that event was fantastic because we both spoke on the same sort of topics, but without even talking beforehand about how important STEM skills are for, for your future. And um, I think those kids really um, enjoyed those um, different perspectives that we brought. Definitely. And uh, as you and I both, uh, we were chatting about it, completely different backgrounds, you and I, but both working in, in tech. And it just it showed the children that you could have different paths into technology. Of course, crucial to have STEM subjects at school is my opinion, but why make things difficult for yourself? Yeah, so I think that different pathways is so important for kids to see and that it's not just one way of um, getting to a job and in fact the job's not the end so your pathway is your life and I think that just by telling um, our stories and by um, people going out from the STEM community and talking to kids about, you know, how did they get where they are and what do they hope to do in the future just shows that it's not a race to the finish line, that you're, um, you've got a really long life um, ahead and those um, STEM skills can really set you up for the future. That's fantastic. And I think, you know, as you've just said, we're all on our journey and, you know, not to say that what you and I are doing now, we'll be doing it in two years, five years, 10 years time, although I hazard to guess, you're one of these rare individuals that growing up, you knew what you wanted to do and, and be um, as an adult. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, look, um, so I'm a, a radio astronomer. And when I was a kid, obviously, I actually didn't know that astronomers were people that got paid to do what they do. I thought that astronomy was a hobby. I absolutely loved it. Um, I grew up in the countryside outside of Ballarat and we had beautiful dark skies and um, I spent a lot of time um, outside. My friends and I would lie on the trampoline underneath our dunas and look up at the sky and just chat. And um, my my parents always got me up to see you know, eclipses of the moon or we saw Halley's Comet, the tiny, tiny speck through our tiny, tiny telescope. Um, so I just grew up with that. And I also had um, a really fantastic physics teacher at school and she really just encouraged everybody to be inquisitive and ask questions and don't accept what you're hearing, you know, always just get down to the bottom of it. And so I came out of, um, you know, my childhood with a really big love for um, astronomy and physics and was really keen to go to um, university and study physics. And when I got to uni, um, I found out that astronomy was a subject at uni. And um, I went and talked to the head of astronomy um, at Melbourne Uni. And she told me that um, you could study astronomy. And in fact, 
why don't I stay on and do a PhD, which I hadn't even known what is, was a thing at that point, and told me which subjects to take. And um, after that, I was absolutely hooked. So that's um, how I got into astronomy. And um, although I've had a lot of um, jobs along the way, astronomy has been the, um, the point that I've always come back to. It's my um, absolute passion um, in, in my life. Listen, I heard you speak, and as I said to you, I was sitting at the edge of my chair. Um, you, you've got such a passion for what you're doing. I, I, I told you, I think if I could have my start my career over, I'll come and do what you're doing because it just sounded so brilliant. And I, I looked at those kids that you were talking to, and I could see their faces lighting up of an unimagined world for them. Yeah, um, look, I'm, I'm pretty lucky in being able to um, study really the basics of the universe and um, what I look at is um, how galaxies form and evolve um, using radio telescopes primarily but also other telescopes um, but I've also um, have a really big sense of um, that um, that luck I guess that I'm, I'm in this position and so my whole career and um, pretty much ever since I got into astronomy I've made sure that I've um, done outreach to to kids and to the general public on astronomy because it is a topic of interest. So I've worked at the Melbourne Planetarium. I used to work at the Melbourne Observatory giving sky tours. I've always taught. I still teach today, um, teaching undergraduate students, um, give a lot of public talks, um, try to go on radio and really inspire um, people and provide that knowledge um, that you might not otherwise know so that um, people sort of understand our our universe mm -hmm. um, but also it can take you um, you know it allows you to take that step back from your day-to-day -to, -day to think there's something bigger out there and um, you know sometimes if I'm having a tough day I just think well I'm a very small person on a very small planet in a very big universe and um, somehow that seems to help you get through sometimes. Definitely. I've been looking at some of the um, the reports and pictures of the James Webb telescope. And um, I mean, it's fantastic. I have to agree. I actually one day I looked at a photo of it. I thought, I don't know what I'm going on about. Look at this massive universe out there. Yeah. The James Webb Space Telescope um, is absolutely incredible. And it's more than 25 years in the making. It's really difficult to um, make a um, space telescope in general, but one that has um is has such high precision um it has a um effective mirror size of 6.5 meters now compared to the hubble space telescope which i'm sure um, many listeners would be aware of that has a, a mirror size of 2.5 meters so it is much much bigger but not only that it's much more sensitive and it's really sensitive to infrared light and that infrared light allows us to look at much, much more distant galaxies. But in astronomy, when we see further back, um, further in distance in the universe, we're actually also looking back in time because light takes time to get to us. So the light that we're seeing from some of the galaxies that we're, uh, we've picked up with James Webb Space Telescope left this, the galaxy just after the beginning of the universe, after the Big Bang, um, maybe 13 billion years ago and has spent all that time traveling to Earth, and we're now picking it up with that um, JWST. So it's absolutely incredible. It's going to change our view of, um, of what we know in the universe in, in many ways, 
um, distant galaxies, but also nearby. We're going to be looking for nearby planets and also looking for things like atmospheres um, around planets because it will be able to detect um, things like um, oxygen and so on in the atmosphere of planets as the planets tra um, transit in front of a star. We're all very curious. What is out there? Is there another? Is there life out there? Are there, um, you know, other uh, the life forms? And what we look for are those markers um, on the planets that we know that life um, requires here on Earth. And water is one of those. And so um, we do look for things like water and, and oxygen and so on in the um, in the atmospheres of planets. And um, yeah, JWST is is going to help us find those planets. Look, I, it's mind-boggling. You know, it's it's. Um, I read about the stuff. I, I actually this morning read an article about um, the telescope and how important it is to um, interpret the information correctly that they're getting. Um, I'll send it to you. I, I subscribe to your newsletter. And I just briefly flicked through, and I thought, oh, this is quite interesting. So, um, look. I, I, um, I've spoken to um, as Professor Allen Duff, as you know, and we were talking about space junk, and, and this is a particular issue that we're all facing um, as we're exploring unknown universes and, and going out there. What's your opinion on this? I think that um, space junk in particular is a huge issue and mm -hmm. that when we're looking at space exploration, we really need to think about the whole life cycle of whatever we're sending up um, so something like JWST, it's a one in a 25 year mission. So um, it is a really big single telescope. It's um, a long, long way from Earth and it's um, it has a really specific purpose. But a lot of what's happening today um, is much closer to Earth and has a much shorter lifetime. So, for example, there's a lot of satellites, um, microsatellites being launched at the moment, um, thousands and thousands of them for things like internet access um, and monitoring and so on. Um, and those will provide services to Earth, but um, it's also going to... Um, potentially degrade our experience of being a human on earth because we're we are going to um, gradually over time lose that um, clear and and beautiful night sky that we kind of take for granted at the moment and we see this in astronomy when um, our astronomers are um, for example um, Swinburne has a, a partnership with the Keck Telescope and it was one of the biggest telescopes in the world. It's on um, Mauna Kea in, in Hawaii and it requires, um, you know, a really dark sky if you want to see very faint objects. The problem with all of these satellites is that they can um, go in the path of your observations and you won't be able to see those really faint, faint galaxies and so on. So for, for James WST, uh, uh, sorry, JWST, um, it's not so much of an issue because it's, you know, the orbit is a million miles away. Um, it's, it's not being affected by that. But for us on Earth, you know, most of us are going to live on Earth for the rest of our lives. Um, so um, we're going to have that, that effect that um, the satellites are actually going to degrade what we see in the night sky. And it's so it's from the professional point of view, but also... Um, from our own personal experience we all you know many of us have gone out camping and you you know you love looking at the night sky it's beautiful you feel like you're part of the universe 
Um, how is that going to change if you, um, you know, have satellites whizzing around, um, which we do, you can see them more and more as you go out um, into the dark areas and even in the cities. But what about if that just never stops and you, you're seeing satellites pretty much the whole time? And I've heard um, of plans for advertising in space, so satellites that are doing advertisements. I mean, that to me is a, is a real um, ethical issue that we need to um, assess as, um, as humankind and um, really think about how do we um, monitor and make sure that we're keeping that um, the space clean and available for, for everybody's enjoyment. We've gone off a bit of a sidetrack because I'm going to come straight back to your career now. What's been highlights for you and um, have you had any challenges? Like, great if you haven't, but like, what, what's it been like for you? Uh, so I think what I've really loved in my career is the variation. And so I started out when I was doing my PhD and my um, postdoctoral fellowships um, really very hands-on. So I spent a lot of time at, um, in particular, the Parkes Radio Telescope and the Australia Telescope Compact Array in um, New, South, New South Wales. And you can actually visit these telescopes. You just drive along the Newell Highway and if you're driving up to Brisbane from Melbourne, you can, um, or, or vice versa, you can um, pop in and see both of those telescopes. And I spent a lot of time, um, we surveyed the whole of the southern sky with Parkes and we did a lot of follow-up observations with the Australia Telescope um, Compact Array. And so I loved that hands-on experience where you're day after day, um, you know, part of a big team and really have a really big science question, which for us is um, we were looking for um, hydrogen, which is um, the most common element in the universe, um, and it emits radio waves. We were looking for hydrogen in galaxies, and hydrogen is the thing that powers stars. So if we find hydrogen, then we um, are looking at something that could potentially form stars in the future or was previously a star um, beforehand. And so it's a really important component of galaxies. So we looked in the whole southern sky for, uh, for hydrogen, and that's what I did my thesis on. Um, and then I was lucky enough to go to um, Jodrell Bank Observatory in the UK and do the same thing with the um, Jodrell Bank telescope there, the Lovell telescope, um, where we surveyed um, a large chunk of the northern sky. And of course, um, in the south, we can only see a certain amount of the sky. So we have to um, go on the other side of the globe to, to look at the other part of the sky. That was a real highlight for me um, because... I loved the idea of being in an international team and um, really seeing um, all of the different elements of planning and um, execution and then data analysis and writing up the results and um, then you know, explaining your work to others is, is really exciting. Um, but as you can tell, um, going to a telescope takes time and um, you know, I um, had a young family when I was a postdoctoral researcher. And I would say that's one of the challenges that I found when I was um, younger in, in astronomy. And really there's a lot of expectation as an astronomer that you're going to go to a telescope, you, you'll do a lot of um, observing and um, you'll go to conferences. And especially when you're located in Australia, you need to go overseas and so on. And so you've got the choice of, well, do I leave my, my children with my partner and go by myself or do we, all go as a family overseas and you can imagine on a <laughs> on a postdoctoral rage trying to take a family all around the world we've we we did we took them 
Um, kids have been all around the world with me. Um, I've gone to the conference. They've had a holiday. <laughs> um, and <laughs> my parents luckily came observing with us. And um, so that's been a real challenge. But I must say COVID's changed all, a, a lot of that. So um, and and in the last 10 years, the technologies have really changed so that a lot of the observing is now done online and you can now attend conferences online. Nearly every conference has a hybrid model where you, if you can't attend that conference, you can still give a talk, you can still listen to the lectures, you can still catch up with people. And it might not be exactly the same experience as if you were there, but it's not nothing. So it used to be all or nothing. And if yeah. you didn't go to conferences, no one knew who you were, no one knew yeah. about your research, you couldn't make the networks. But now we can, um, we've got this hybrid model and we can we can talk over Zoom and other um, different platforms. And it's um, so much more accessible. And I think that's been, if, if we can say there's a positive out of COVID, the positive is that we have reassessed our need to travel because we couldn't. And, yeah. uh, and I think that's going to be a real positive um, for our um, our research communities. I think that's fantastic. And um, I, I did actually notice that the other day, this um, model of hybrid online, um, you know, like everything's catered for. I mean, I think it's fantastic if you've got the resources to do that, to allow your, your um, people to attend and even speakers to do that. I think it makes sense if you're traveling from overseas, if that's the only reason you're going to a conference. I mean, it is fantastic, as you say, to network in person, but if you're there literally just to give a, a one hour paper and, you know, maybe chat and then you, you're heading out for excruciating flight back to Australia, um, it's fantastic. Yeah, that's right. And there's also the um, sustainability um, mm. of that. So it's really not not a great use of our um, fossil fuel <laughs> budget, yeah. I guess, yeah. that we have over the next um, until 2050. Um, yeah. We've really got to stop um, using the fossil fuels. And one of those big, big uses is um, in air travel. And so if we can cut that down, not just in the astronomy community, but uh, but in general and keep those um, flights for where it's going to be the most valuable and I don't think you want to cut it out totally but certainly um, you don't need to pop on a plane for every single meeting and yeah. we've really learned that over the last two years. Yeah as chief scientist for Sunburn University of Technology like what are you responsible for do you do you have a typical day? No definitely don't <laughs> have a typical day um, so I, um, I am as far as I know, I'm the first chief scientist at a university, and that means it's an incredibly exciting opportunity. And um, I spent a lot of time thinking about what, what does a chief scientist mean at a university? And the things that I'm really focused on are education and outreach, um, policy, um, equity and diversity, and, um, and research outcomes. And so I've, I focused all my time on those um, uh, activities. And um, they're very broad. And so, um, I'm, as I said, I'm teaching. Um, so when it's semester, I might be um, giving an online lecture or giving a lecture in person. I've just finished lecturing in astronomy um, in person and I'm about to do some um, space technology lectures online. So we've sort of got a hybrid model at Swinburne um, in terms of our lectures. Um, but I also look after things like um, the research infrastructure at the university, 
um, I'm a big connector within the university. So um, I know we're a sort of a smallish university. And one of our big strengths is that we're able to work in a multidisciplinary um, way. And so, um, you know, I'm forever trying to connect people from different schools. Um, so it might be med tech with, um, with our engineering or um, space with our, um, you know, our health scientists and um, really trying to make those new connections and make things, um, and that's where you get these really interesting projects. So, for example, um, I, um, I invited a group of ECRs, or early career researchers, to come to an event because um, for some development. Um, and in that group was um, a health science researcher um, who is working on exercise science, actually. And he had an idea for a new way of doing exercise on the International Space Station. So we're now working together on that project. So I'm coming, we're coming from the space side, myself and um, um, other collaborators. He's coming from the exercise side and we're trying to put together a new project about um, how do you, um, you know, work on the International Space Station and work out and um, have optimum body health. Um, and so those new connections are really, really exciting. Um, so I, I do spend a lot of time um, just talking with researchers and trying to help them progress um, their research so that we can have really good impacts to society or just those basic fundamental questions. So as an astronomer, I really um, am passionate about just understanding how things work, how, how the universe works, um, how um, our materials, our structures, um, you know, what what's a, you know, how, how does it um, all form and, and go together? Um, because from those fundamental discoveries, that's where you get, um, you know, new technologies coming. So, you know, we've got a lot of researchers working in the quantum area and um, the quantum area is very, very fundamental. However, it's going to, and it is already, but going to be so important in the future for things like communications and computing and it, without those decades of fundamental research, understanding how things work on a quantum level, we'd never get to the point of being able to make a quantum computer. So um, I really like that, you know, fundamental to application um, side of things. So you've actually got a crucial role in the ecosystem as far as I'm concerned, because the amount of people in this podcast um, was actually born out of um, being on the robotics roadmap and actually finding out half of the robotics community in Australia don't know about each other. So I decided it's my it's my responsibility to do, introduce everyone to each other. So being a very social person that I am, but seriously, I've spoken to so many, um, you know, especially universities where um, things can get very siloed and very parochial because there's a lot at stake. There's funding and um, departments um you know they're in essence competing against each other which I, I don't actually know how that model was designed for university you know internally to be competing for for funding yeah and it's really easy to set it set up a university like that um yeah. and we're really trying to break down those silos um quite deliberately and um i think that's um a really important thing um because you um, get those interesting research problems happening when you're working together. If you're mm. if you're siloed, you don't have the the broad point of view. You might miss something that someone else is going to bring to the table, 
and you might miss an opportunity as well. And so um, I've seen it time and time again that we've got these really interesting projects coming out because we've broken down those silos. And so, um, and it's not just silos in disciplines, there's also silos in um, in levels. So I'm also trying to really, you know, lift the work of ECRs um, and, and our PhD students and um, helping, giving them opportunities as well. Well, I'm sure other universities uh, or other um, chancellors that may or may not be listening to this podcast may decide they also need chief scientists at their university. So you'll know they did when, they, when you see another one popping up till now. They must have seen my work. So you are co-founder and a committee member of the Wattle Leadership Program for Women. Tell us a little bit about this. Um, the Wattle Leadership Program um, was set up by myself and um, a few colleagues, um, Birgit Locke, um, who's at UNE at the moment, um, Helena Keepers at um, Swinburne, and Rosemary Stockdale, um, who's at Griffith. And it's really there to provide um, an opportunity for women to not only develop their skills in leadership, but really provide um, a network within the university community. And it was, um, we identified that um, there's a lot of, um, I guess, talk and um, plan, action plans around getting more women into leadership positions within universities. It's pretty dire. Um, when you look at the university executive level, um, the um, percentage of women is around 20% or less. And so um, when we think um, and recognise that in at the PhD level, so that research project level, just straight out of uni, it's um, almost 50-50, or it is 50-50, um, uh, we realise that there's a really big problem there. And so there's a lot of action to try and get more women into those roles, but there's no plan to actually develop women to be ready for those roles or then support them um, in those roles. And so this is where Wattle comes in. And it's based on a, um, a program that's been running in New Zealand for over a decade, very, very successful. And they've got over 700 alumna Lumna in in New Zealand, um, and so we um, we set this up in in Australia um, and adapted it for Australian universities. Um, and uh, it what we do is we have um, a, a leadership program where we bring together a cohort of women um, in small groups so that they can meet each other across the different universities. Um, universities send um, typically send two staff members to the program, and they'll be in in positions where they're just about ready and interested in taking on, say, a dean role or, um, you know, being in the university executive. Um, and so we get them to meet each other and form a network so that they have the confidence to apply and they've got a network that they can ask questions. So um, I know that, um, you know, when you're thinking of, say, engineering, you, you might never have met a woman engineering dean um, or a, a executive director or so on. And so um, who do you go to for advice? Do you feel even confident applying for those roles? And so we um, get our um, this cohort together and then we invite um, speakers to come and talk to the women. And that's part of the networking as well. And we've got a really generous group of um, women and men who've come along and, and talked to this um, these groups. Um, they've um, been lots of vice chancellors um, and also deans and business women. Um, and we've got lots of discussions going. So we um, 
really find that the women that are coming into the program are meeting their peers they're, and they're getting the confidence to go on to, to new roles. Um, we actually run the program for both um, academic women and for professional women because professional women within the university network have their own challenges, even though that's more likely to be a women-dominated area. There's a huge number of challenges being a woman in the professional area and particularly around career advancement. It's a very different um, ball game when you look when you're a professional woman. And they're in, so, so important to running a university and having a successful university. So we have um, two cohorts um, every year, and that's been really important for us. Um, some of the outcomes that we've had are women who've gone on to be, we've got deans, um, directors, um, women who've just had the confidence to apply for new roles, whether or not they get it. Um, they've um, attributed their confidence to, um, to going on the program and then having that cohort of support um, afterwards. And we've had some women who've then gone on and spun out their own businesses and they had the confidence to go, actually, this is something else I want to do. Um, we see all of these as successes because it's just allowing um, these women to really see their potential and take the, the path that they would like to take. So, um, yes, yeah, so we've got 15 universities. We're going to be running our program again in November, um, which we're very, very excited about. And um, we're hoping to to bring more universities on board in the future. Congratulations. I see you as enablers and I, um, you know, I've, I've spoken to an enormous amount of women um, on, on the podcast and it always amazes me that highly, highly competent and um, really just gifted women, they, they sometimes just, you know, they're very self-deprecating and I don't know, I think it's, I think it's a little bit of female thing, um, you know, because little girls, you know, I think we taught you must be nice and boys can do what they like and it's the language that we use. Um, I, I think there was a study that I read about little girls playing together and if there's a bossy little girl, she actually gets ostracized by the other the girls because little girls mustn't be bossy and they mustn't have leadership. So you need to find... Um, for all the mothers out there, you need to find a group where all the girls are equally bossy, so they have to jostle for the position. So this isn't <laughs> when your, your daughter grows up. This is quite normal. I'm I'm the boss. I'm coming in there. So I think that's fantastic. Um, really, congratulations. Um, this probably touches a little bit on the work of Dr. Louise Olson Kettle that uh, she's uh, just released an article about the Matilda effect, demonstrating where women women's achievements in science and research has been overlooked. Um, I actually saw that you liked this post. Can you just give us like a bit of a brief summary about this? Yeah, so um, Dr. Louise Olson-Kettle is a um, senior lecturer at Swinburne University here um, in the mathematics department. And in Science Week, she gave a talk about the Matilda effect, which is um, really she highlighted where women have been overlooked or their work has been appropriated to men um, from, from history. And this is um, mainly in the science area. And the women have made these incredible achievements, um, for example, finding a comet, um, understanding um, dinosaurs, uh, mathematical theorems. You know, you can think of the full gambit. Um, but their work was either ignored or not attributed to themselves. And the women also had, um, you know, 
many of them had huge challenges, even in just getting an education. So some, um, at least one of the women had to um, take on a man's name to be able to be enrolled in, in university. Um, many of them, you know, took um, notes from others and, you know, found their own way to get their education and to try and get their, their work recognised. So what Louise did was really research these women and she's presented um, 21 women who um, have been overlooked in history and um, has given their story. And I think this was absolutely fantastic because um, she really just said, here's the woman and here's what they've done and this is how they were overlooked and it's it's all factual and um, now we know about it. And I was really glad to see um, how much interest that this talk um, has um, been given. Um, there's an article in Cosmos about it um, and you can actually find the talk online. Um, and uh, really just educate yourself on um, these forgotten women. And I, I really um, do appreciate all the work that Louise has done done in this um, area. Yeah, congratulations. I'll um, certainly read the article. And if, if I remember to put the link in the show notes, I'll certainly do that. Um, <clears throat> we know there's a huge, huge uh, gap in gender in STEM. Is Swinburne doing anything to address this? I know different universities have got outreach programs. Are you also sort of doing stuff like that? Yeah, we, um, we've got a lot of things that we do in this area. Um, our, uh, one of the big things that we do is um, we're part of the um, SAGE program, which is the Athena Swan um, program for gender equity within um, Australia. And we, um, everybody who signs up to that program um, is signing up to reduce the, um, the gender gap in STEM areas. And um, so we're a bronze awardee of that program, which means that we've evaluated our current situation and we've got an action plan over the next um, number of years to address that, that gap. So some of the things that we're, we're really looking at are our hiring practices, um, our um, onboarding, and how do we support women whilst they're um, at the university. Um, and then there's obviously that pipeline effect as well. And so as part of um, you know, our programs, we look at um, the gender equity um, of, of some of the programs that we, we run. So um, one of the programs that I'm involved in is um, the um, Swinburne Youth Space Innovation Challenge and where we send um, experiments to the um, International Space Station. And in that program, we ensure that um, our, our staff, uh, we've got gender equity um, in our staff and um, we actually have um, high school kids participating in that program. So we had 13 schools this year participating where they're um, you know um, vying to send something to the space station and that will launch in in um, January but for that program we have um, actually I think slightly more women than men if I remember correctly or at least gender equity in that program um, and so when we run programs like that I think it's really important that we're providing um, women and girls the opportunity to partake in the highest level STEM programs because you realise that um, you're not limited by your own capabilities. Um, if you work hard and you've got some support, then you can actually achieve um, 
you know, the, the universe, I guess you can actually send something yeah. to space. And so, so that's one of our um, really big success stories in this area. Yeah. And I think, I think the important notion to get through to everyone is um, it's not a win-lose situation. Everyone wins. If you've got the best woman put forward for the job and they're doing an excellent job, then you just take them. If you put the best men forward, like it's not, you know, this, this attitude of well if you if if they go then you know it's nonsense like you're developing everyone in the world yeah that's right and um we we provide programs for for everyone but we really like to have a diverse cohort and that diversity doesn't just extend to gender um we really are trying to look at um traditionally underrepresented groups um, in the STEM area as well and um, provide those opportunities. And it doesn't mean that every single person is going to become a space scientist, but you're given the opportunity to, if that's what your interest is, and that's the important thing. And um, the other thing is if you, um, you know, take, undertake STEM studies and then decide actually um, I'm, I, I want to become a business person or have a small business or work in government or whatever, those STEM skills are going to be of use no matter where you are. So you could just imagine I'm in the planning department. Why do I need to have a science degree? Well, there's a lot of science in planning. Like if you don't know about how the environment works, how um, heat transfer works, um, all of these basic concepts, then you may make a decision that um, is not going to be advantageous down the road because you didn't, you weren't aware of that. So I think just by providing the opportunities in STEM um, throughout the education um, of people's lives, and that can that can go on, um, you know, lifelong education. I'm really a big believer in that. Um, those STEM skills are going to be useful no matter where you are in your career. I agree with you, and it's the ripple effect. You know, it doesn't mean, as you said, they're going to go and you know be an astronaut or something it, it's that they've been given the opportunity and that opens up their their generosity gene again because you know when people are generous to me then I go well people were generous to me I'll be generous to others I hope it's not that simplistic for me but you know generally speaking yeah. you you know you if you've been and we've been shown many many good turns that we don't even know about with people in the background doing stuff for us so you know, I think it's a paid forward thing that you do some for other people and they don't necessarily have to know about it. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And it's a really nice way to um, approach life, actually, Nikki. Well, you know, I go, well, like, where, where's my good deed for the day so I can sleep well tonight? I go, like, because karma, is, karma will come back. So. <laughs> now, in, through your travels and your journeys, have you had a mentor? I, I'm not sure I've had an official mentor, but I've definitely adopted mentors. Um, and I, um, I once was at a leadership program and they said, you, you set up a board of a mentor board of directors. So I'm giving you a bit of my, uh, <laughs> inner know, in workings here. And so, um, and the idea is that, you know, identifying people that you're really comfortable with and building a relationship with them. Um, and then you can, um, depending on what the, you know where you are in your life and and what's happening you've got different people you can reach out to yeah. and so I really do have a number of people who I would see as mentors um, I'm not 100% sure if they would know me as their mentee but um, I'm definitely you know um, looking at them 
seeing how they operate um, and reaching out to them when um, I might have a question, but also reaching out to offer my support to those people. And I feel like that relationship can be a two-way relationship as well. So I think it is really important. And we um, we have set up mentor programs at Swinburne as well. We've got um, a women's mentoring program for, for the promotion process, for example, where you get a mentor who's going to help you with that. And I think that's incredibly important um, for that particular, um, you know, time in your career. Um, but that mentor relationship might be a short one. Um, but you can also imagine really long-term mentoring relationships that you build over, over many, many years. Um, I just don't think that we can operate by ourselves. We, we're, um, humans seem to be, um, you know, working best when we work with others and learn from others. And so I've always really tried to take feedback and um, and learn from the people around me and see, you know, how how did people, particularly in, in difficult situations, I really take a lot of notice on how people um, deal with difficult situations and try to take that on board when I, um, you know, encounter the same myself. So, yeah, I do think it's it's really impo- um, important and, and valuable to have a mentor and um, hopefully most institutions have programs to um, provide mentors if you don't have that um, natural relationship. And especially when you're an early career researcher, you might not have the confidence to be able to um, you know, go out and find your own mentor. So it's really nice to, to have those programs that, to help set you up with one. I couldn't agree with you more, you know, whether you... <clears throat> your um, mentors realize that they are not because I I always used to say to my children you must you must realize there's always someone watching you you know and you think you blaseing through this world on your own but there's always someone watching you how you behave what you was what you say and you know particularly in difficult situations um, when we can say we're either in a corner or our back is to the wall that that's when your true nature comes out and you know, there's a lot to be said, but I think, you know, in our day to day, we forget that. But I, I do think we're always watching each other. And, you know, that's also the crowd effect or crowd behavior. When one person starts going through um, a, a traffic light, I was about to say a robot, but a traffic light. And then um, the others go, oh, well, they're doing it, you know. So, you know, the, the crowd behavior, collective crowd behavior of one person's doing it must be okay. No, it's not okay. That's one rogue person. Stop that. You're not supposed to be doing that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, there's, it, it's so easy for um, you to, people to imitate others. Um, and that really come back to that um, key childhood message that I was given at school, which is question everything. Why why is that? Why are you doing this yourself? Just because everybody else is doing it, does it mean that you should do it? Is it right for you? Is it right for them? Maybe they've got it wrong. You know, really um, going into life with that questioning attitude um, gets you a long way, actually. Yeah. And how do you cope with your children saying to you, mom, are you sure this is the right thing? Um, on the one hand, I, I love, I mean, you know, it makes parenting more difficult. I was about to say, because I'm your mom and I say so. But my kids have always questioned me and I've always welcomed yeah. it. Um, I think it's really important that they don't just 
take my word for it, even, <laughs> even if that is difficult. And at times, like when my son was studying physics and I was head of the Department of Physics, I'm like, no, this is really how it works. And he wouldn't believe me. And I did have to say, no, but I'm the head of physics and this is how it works. Um, but, you know, and but then I still think, you know, that's great. They're questioning. And um, in the long term, that's that's more important that we have that. And this is what is good about a university is seriously put out an email and you will get people coming back questioning why you've made that decision and there's always a, a broad range of um, opinions maybe you don't agree with it but just taking them on board and and saying okay I understand that but for these reasons this is the other the the thing the way that we're going to go forward um, it's a really good way to be I think no, it's excellent. And, uh, you know, I was chatting to my aunt's son who's doing his PhD now, and I said to him, you know, when you make difficult decisions, you actually have to write it down somewhere where you can backtrack to it and go, um, in two years' time when you reflect on you go, oh, like, <clears throat> that wasn't the best decision. So you can go back to that date and go, let me just read why I made this decision because you can't possibly remember all these things. And you go, oh, look, I was faced with X, Y, Z set of circumstances, and based on those the information at hand, the circumstances, that was the best decision. You know, hindsight is always a wonderful thing. I can't agree with you more. Hindsight is yeah. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> we should have had that. <laughs> Virginia, it's been an absolute delight speaking with you. Have you got any closing thoughts or um, wisdom that you would leave to our, or leave our audience with? <clears throat> Not sure I've got any wisdom. Um, I just reflect on um, sort of, I guess my career and the the fact that I've been incredibly um, lucky and um, honoured to be able to be in the the field that I am in astronomy and um, I'd encourage people to try and take your own path and um, if it might be in STEM and it may not be in STEM that's absolutely okay. But um, if you've got that that passion, um, if you're able to find that the way to put that into your career, then um, I'd really encourage you to go for it. Um, and um, it might mean you need to take a step back from your current career or go and do some extra study or, you know, take, take that leap of faith. And sometimes taking that leap of faith can lead you to, um, you know, places that you really never expected. Oh, that's wonderful. Where can the audience reach you? I'm on LinkedIn and um, I have a very um, unique name. I have a very unique name, so you can just Google me and find me at Swinburne. Thank you so much. If you can hear my dog barking in the background, it's because my dog is barking in the background. And they're all going busy. So to our audience, um, Virginia, firstly, thank you. So appreciate your time. I know you're really, really busy. And um, as I said, it's been absolutely fantastic uh, speaking with you this morning. Thank you so much. Um, for to our, it's a pleasure. And to our audience in the rest of the world, rest of Australia, wherever you are, I hope you have a fantastic day. Um, look after yourself, stay safe, and I look forward to your company next week. Mm -hmm.